while the Bible is under attack today, it is being jettisoned, it's being uh, rejected, it's being, as maybe the popular buzzword, deconstructed, um, in that people have lost this idea that there can be any types of absolute truth. And that's even arrogant to say that we can actually see something like the Bible and say that it has the corner on absolute truth. And as a result, deconstruction has accelerated as the buzzword in recent years. As one author put it and defined deconstruction, he says, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity, Christianity they formerly knew. Now, get what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Christians will have and experience times of great spiritual crisis in our lives. I'm not saying that there could be, at times, cultural influences that come and um, disrupt um, a, a right view of biblical Christianity. Um, but what I am saying is that this is not new. The attacks on Christianity has come even from the very beginnings of the first century to the fourth century uh, to folks like Marcion who rejected the Old Testament because he didn't see that it was compatible or um, coherent with the rest of the New Testament about a loving God to this last turn of the century of liberal progressivism and just people doubting the inerrancy of the scriptures. But what we want to say here at Hope is that we want to be very clear that God has spoken authoritatively through the 66 books of scripture over a period of over 2,000 years of over 40 different authors. And this is referred to as the canon of scripture. This is the most attested ancient book source in history. Over 10,000 manuscripts exist of even the Old Testament and the New Testament alone. It is more attested than um, the Iliad or the Odyssey or other ancient works. And we want to say with a doubt, without a doubt, that the canon of Scripture is closed, that there's not going to be another inspired book coming out in 2024. So if you do see something on Amazon saying a lost gospel or this should be added to the New Testament canon, uh, make sure you hit the return button. Um, the Bible itself is complete, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, and it is a precious delight. And at the same time, we do believe at hope that the Lord is still speaking and he loves to speak to his church today. We don't get that anywhere else from that of God's word. John's letter in Revelation speaks uh, seven times. The Spirit of God says to the churches, 
seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. John implores his people to hear. And we know that God has spoken everything he wanted to communicate in the Gospels through his infallible word. But the Spirit has not just hit the mute button. He's continually speaking to us in his word, and he's amplifying his word to the world. And so this is just really the goal behind this sermon series, The God Who Speaks, is simply that we want to say that God loves to speak to us. And the first and the most primary um, way that God speaks to us is through his perfect revelation of his word. But also, we see that scripture is speaking and pointing to someone. The Bible is not just a book to its own ends. It is pointing to a person, the perfect word, the perfect, perfect logos, Jesus Christ, that he is the perfect revelation of everything that God wanted to explain and reveal about himself. Jordan's going to hit that up next week. And not only that, because we see the supreme revelation of who God is and all that God is for us is in Jesus, he hasn't just left us with a historical book, but he's given us his spirit that we are now temples of the living God and we have the spirit of God inside of our hearts and he uses the ongoing revelation of walking in step with the spirit to show us more of who Christ is and how much more Christ needs to to form himself into our lives. And so we speak of the Spirit of, as the shy member of the Trinity, and his goal is to, to illuminate and to reveal Christ to his people. And then lastly, we'll hit on God speaking through community, through the fellowship of his body. Simply put, we are designed as a body with certain giftings. And you think back to 1 Corinthians, and you think about how Paul says that each of us have a lesson and a hymn and a tongue and an interpretation and um, a word of prophecy. And so often that God speaks to us through his people and through his church. And so I don't know where you are today. Um, you might be in a place where the Lord is speaking to you and you're just so um, just enraptured by him. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to you. Maybe you're in a place where you're, you're, you're in a place where God is not speaking to you and you feel like profound doubt of, can I even hear the voice of God? And maybe that's just you this morning. Maybe it's been months and months since you have heard the word of the Lord. And you long to hear his voice. You haven't given up yet. But you're definitely on the verge of that. Whatever season you're in, I just want to say at Hope Church that from what we believe about the scriptures, that we want to say that it is normative for us to hear the voice of the Lord as he's revealed it in consistency with his word. And anything else that does not line up with the word of God, we can feel free to throw that out. But if there is some things that the Lord is speaking to us, that we can come before him and respond. Jordan kind of gave a, Jordan, not kind of, he gave a stirring message. And I want to encourage you uh, to listen to it. Um, it. It really challenged me about sowing seeds from fallow hearts or fertile hearts. He challenged us to, um, that if we want to sow righteousness and sow the kingdom of God in our lives, that we've got to be willing to be inconvenienced in our schedule and to be able to sow that righteousness. 
And I can't think of what better way than for us to be surrendered to God in all of 2024 is for us to be surrendered in that the first step is that we would want to sit before the voice of the living God and sit before his word and say, God, I want to sit and I want you to speak to me in a fresh way. And that's why we spend time fasting. That's why we spend time even fasting from things like food. Um, we know that the first couple days you're just hangry, as uh, Randy was talking about. But um, many of you all can testify that maybe if toward the middle of the week, if it's a longer fast, the fog list, and you start hearing the voice of the Lord, you start hearing from the scriptures, and you just see a resurgence of your faith. And you wonder why you don't do it more often. And this is where I think we want to start. We believe that the scriptures are authoritative and they are alive. And all the scriptures point to Christ. And as we think about the God who speaks, that we would have a high view of the word of God. As some of our past presidents have said, as Abraham Lincoln put it, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Now, the president, Theodore Roosevelt, said this, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. That speaks to me. So when parents, as you're thinking about the costs for scholarships in colleges, um, just know that there was a president who was attesting to the very power of a scriptural knowledge of the Bible. But it's not just about a gift about who God is. It is a living and breathing book, and that's what I want to bring to you today. I didn't put it up because I want you to put, take this quote to your heart. But as one of my heroes, Martin Luther, said, and listen to this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. And it has hands that lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It is eternal. And I think that many of us have such a casual, and I would dare say a lackluster response to the word of God. And we need a corrective in our lives. We need a reminder that our heart posture is so important as we go to a God who speaks. He's the living God. He is the creator God. He is the sovereign God. And yet he loves to speak to his children. Just think of what a profound gift that is. And I want to ask us, through this text, what our scripture posture should be. And there are three scripture postures that I just want to briefly go through. Um, and Jake already read the text that I'm not going to um, read through a large portion of it. But I just want to challenge us as we're thinking about 2024. What is your posture to the word of God? The first posture that we see is humility. And we see that through two examples. Philip's response to God's voice. The first thing that we see from this Acts passage is, is Philip. And Philip um, was a humble and obedient man. He had just before this had experienced great success in preaching to the Samaritans. He 
saw a great revival. I mean, just picture if like everybody heard about Asbury and what a great revival that was. And people just started to, to go there and, and just to be wanting to immerse themselves in God's presence. And that's where Philip was. And so you think the last place that God would expect Philip to be was somewhere where there was no revival. But that's where God called Philip to go. He said, the angel of the Lord in verse 26 says, spoke to Philip and said um, this, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Later we see that this angel of the Lord was also the spirit, literally the spirit of God. Verse 29 and 39. Um, And so what you see here is that Philip just seemed like the last place that you would want to stir revival. It was actually the last stopping point in southwest Israel before entering like an extreme desert wasteland. Um, But most likely this was a place um, just to the east of present-day Gaza um, in which there was an area called Tel El-Hesi, which has a spring to service weary travelers. And so, but for all intensive uh, purposes, this was a rest stop before you take and endure the long road down to Egypt. But Philip didn't respond with questions, but only with humility. He said, he didn't even say anything. He just arose and he went. And before you know it, he comes face to face with this eunuch. Look at verse 27. This eunuch was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet um, Isaiah. Um, So what we see is that this was an important court official. Um, He was the head of the treasury. He was probably not um, in what uh, a part of the country of present-day Ethiopia, but probably closer, actually, southeast of Sudan on the fin of eastern Africa. And what was this Ethiopian eunuch doing? Well, he was just coming back from worshiping Jerusalem. He was a God-fearer, which meant that he wasn't a full Jewish convert, but he would go there and he would perform certain worship and certain ceremonies, but he would remain on the outside. But he was not fully in. But what we see is that after he returned, he was not just checking out. He was humbly engaged in the word of God. And most likely he was reading out loud and, and that's probably how Philip knew where he was reading. And the spirit said to Philip, Philip, um, go to that chariot. And Philip must have knew exactly why he was there. And so he goes up and he asks a simple question, what are you reading? And, and do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this absolutely blows me away. He's a rich court official, one of the greatest kingdoms of the earth at that time. And yet, he said, and he had the humility to say, I cannot understand the word of God unless someone guides me. Here's a God-fearer who was not fully initiated into the Jewish world. Here was a, a, a man who was humble enough to receive help. And I think this speaks to us that we see his response. Are we humble enough to say that we need help in coming to God's word to not only understand it, but to apply it? Too many times we think that we know exactly what it says. Maybe we've kind of leaned on our Bible knowledge. 
Maybe we've leaned on just our scriptural knowledge and our theology. And sometimes that's, not, that's a good thing, but sometimes I think we do that to such a fact, to such an extent that we say, that we forget to say, God, what are you speaking me, to me today? And we don't come with a posture of humility. We got to come like David when we come before the, Lord, the word of the Lord. And we have to say, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so is that today your heart when you come before the word of God? Do you come with that kind of posture? Do you come and say, Lord, I need, before I even open my eyes to this book, Lord, may your spirit open my, my eyes. May you take all the rocky soil of my heart and just, man, run it to the ground and open my eyes to the wonders of your word? Do we even invite others? Because I think the Bible is not just sit here and read by yourselves. It is a communal thing. Do you come and you ask for help from your brothers in your discipleship group or your sisters in, in the discipleship groups? And you say, um, you know, I really would love to spend time reading God's afresh this year. So will you pray for me that I would see and that God would open my eyes to the wonders of your word? I just want to challenge you. Maybe this year, you would pray Psalm 119, 18 every time before you break open your Bible in the morning and ask the Lord for help. Maybe you also need to ask somebody else for help or maybe you just want to ask somebody else in your discipleship group or community group just to help you in that. But just saying that humility of posture of saying, Lord, I cannot understand this apart from your help. I need you. I'm a sinner. My eyes are blinded. If not, you have not regenerated my eyes and my soul. Um, and so you might want to just pray that. Even pray Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1.18 where it says, having the eyes of my heart enlightened. So I want to challenge you. Maybe that's just a simple thing that you can do this year to have a posture of humility. The second posture that we see is one of reverence. Um, what we see this is a little bit more implicit in the text, um, but I think it's there. Um, and I submit that humbly to you, if not, correct me. But now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, you know, it's actually good. You know, I just, I, I'm so thankful that these passages are in scripture because the eunuch just wasn't reading the scriptures and understanding it. It gives me hope that whenever I read the word of God and I don't understand it, hey, there was somebody else who also uh, was that. But I just really, I'm refreshed because the eunuch doesn't sit over the Bible and judges the Bible. Rather, he is seated on the chariot. He was reading the book of Isaiah and he was seated under the Bible. See, there's a difference where you say, Lord, I am in no place to interpret, understand, uh, be enlightened, to be transformed or changed. 
God, I need you to do that by your Holy Spirit, by your work alone, versus, hey, God, your word is not speaking to me today, so I guess your word isn't, you know, inspired or authoritative in my life. There's a difference there, and the eunuch had a humility but also a deep reverence um, before the word of the Lord. He reads Isaiah's passage of the servant song, and he wonders what and who this is really about. And so the eunuch was in a place where he was ready to receive. The eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, 7 um, to 8, which is, again, um, Luke, the author or the writer of Acts. He wrote both Luke and Acts, and it was um, split into two parts. It's a two-parter for those of you guys who like that. Um, But Luke shows us the sovereignty of God in this entire situation. And what better passage than you can jump into than a story about someone who has unjustly suffered. And so this image is a sacrificial lamb that's going silently and submissively to his death. And yet in his humiliation, justice was denied him, meaning his life was unjustly taken from him. And the idea here is one of injustice. How can such an injustice of someone who is righteous How can that be taken away? And the eunuch is just coming before this and saying, God, I don't understand this. Why? Who is this person? Who who is this talking about? Is, Is this talking about Isaiah or is it talking about someone else? And so most people would argue about this passage of the time of, Isaiah all the way to the time of Christ. Um, this passage is a part of the servant songs in Isaiah 53. It's known as the servant songs. Uh, this part was not considered messianic by Jewish scholars from the time of Isaiah to the time of Christ. But it was because their conception was wrong. They were blinded because they thought the Messiah would be a triumphant, militaristic conqueror. And so it didn't fit their idea of who the Savior was at all. But of course, when we look at things in hindsight, this, there could not be a better lead-in to see where Philip stood. And so what we see that Philip starts with this passage and then he takes in other passages that speak of Christ. And what's so striking is that he couldn't have been a better passage to start with than that speaks of Jesus' crucifixion and sacrificial death. There could not be a better one. And what a perfect way to say that that fulfillment of everything that the scripture was pointing to was in Christ. Now, we don't know what he drew from, but we know from Acts 10, 34 and Acts 18, 14, that when this phrase is used, when Peter explains the good news about Jesus, that it's probably referring to um, Philip when he heard that first sermon by Peter in Acts 2, and where Peter had said, you know, that God, he explains that God shows no partiality but freely offers forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. And so that's where Philip just starts from this scripture and simply speaks of the good news of Christ, specifically the fact that that Jesus' life, his justice was denied him. And when it seemed like everything was being shot and everything was losing and everything was going to bits, that in the contrary, God was turning everything around and that he was bringing hope and he was bringing joy and he was bringing salvation through 
the great injustice of Jesus being uh, dying on the cross and rising again. And so what we want to see is that Philip gospelizes the eunuch. He tells them, he tells him how every one of the Old Testament prophets finds prophecies finds its true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that the good news of Jesus Christ, that his life, death, and resurrection, contrary to what it looks like, it provided the way for forgiveness of sin and also provided a way for people to get back into relationship with God. And so when it comes to the scriptures, are we open and reverent in saying that the scriptures' primary role is not about us, but it's to point us to Jesus Christ? I think that's lost when sometimes we make the scriptures seemingly about us. But we have to understand that the scriptures are, written, are not written directly to us in a 21st century context. It was written to a biblical audience in a historical context for us. And there's a difference. And the goal of the scriptures was to point to Christ or to point back to Christ. Christ is the centerpiece of all the Old Testament. It is the, literally the promise that was to be kept um, and the promise that was fulfilled in the New Testament. And I think when we see the scriptures, not as a moral guidebook, nor as just an empty book of rules, but it is a book uh, that points to a living, risen Savior who is exalted at the right hand of God, and that Jesus wants to come into our lives and to show us all that God has for us, his power, his glory, his majesty, his eminence, his closeness, his love, and his authority. All that is in Jesus, and he wants to reveal that through his precious word, mediated by the Spirit. Man, that's going to revolutionize your lives and still continues to revolutionize my life. That's what happened to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember, they were dejected and sad because they thought that the Messiah would come and that they thought the Messiah was Jesus, but yet they saw him get brutally crucified and killed. And they thought, hey, this was the Messiah of the world, but he's dead. And Jesus in disguise shows up and walks with them. And I love that because Jesus doesn't leave us in our dejection. He walks with us. But then he, all he could have done is just simply unveil his cloak. He could have just like, you know, tore open like Superman and showed himself. But he didn't do that. What did Jesus do in Luke 24? First, he rebukes them. <laughs> I love that. And said what they needed to see was fully available to them. And he, he, he said, you are slow and foolish to believe all the prophets have been spoken. Like, guys, duh. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 49. Isaiah, I'm going to suffer. Did you not understand that this, the Messiah has to suffer in order for him to be risen up to glory? And in Luke 24, 27, he says, he opened the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the, all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's all it took. Later on, when they broke bread together, took communion, their eyes were open, and that's when they recognized him. And Jesus just vanishes from their eyes. 
But I love what they said. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Hope, should our burning desire be for the Bible to make us feel good or to make Jesus look great? It should bring us to our knees that Jesus Christ himself is the grand subject of the Bible. And every single time you see the scriptures, that you would fight to delight in the Christ who is behind every one of those scriptures. What would happen if we opened this book and the fire of his word would make us more in love with him? It's the same Bible. Same Bible in your hands. Will we be like Billy Graham? As we all know, the famous evangelist said that when he was a young uh, major, Bible study major in college, he had so many questions. He, he struggled with what he thought were inconsistencies of the word of God, therefore had little, little power in his ministry. Um, he didn't have anointing. But when he got alone with the Lord in the mountains of California, there's some good things in California. Um, <laughs> one of those things are the mountains and the beaches and the Dodgers. <clears throat> uh, okay, I should repent of that. Thank you. Um, um, I'm a little sick, so I apologize if I say something in totally uh, wrong. Um, I'll repent of that later. Um, but then he... No, I should repent of that now, right? <laughs> um, so he kneels before his open Bible, and he says, Lord, there are many things I do not understand, but you said the just shall live by faith. Here now I accept the Bible for what it is. I take it all without reservation. What I do not understand, I will reserve judgment until after I receive more light. If it pleases thee, give me the authority as I preach your Word. And the next week, Billy Graham started the Los Angeles Crusade where thousands were saved and his ministry began to attain global influence. He said later that the people came to his crusades not to hear a great order of his word, but to hear what God had said through his word. And he said after that, he found that the word of God was a flame of fire in his hands. Do we have that reverence before the word of the living God? Every word is like fire. Lastly, our last scripture posture is joy. And I just, um, I know it's kind of heavy, but as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water, it prevents me from being baptized. And he commanded the chariots to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I love that. I love that both of them went into the water. This is not so much a story about a defense on what baptism looks like, whether it's immersion, whether it's sprinkling. This is not a defense on... Um, how fast a, a person should get baptized after faith. We know that baptism follows faith. 
what I think the scripture speaks to us is that there is joy in the scriptures and obedience to the scriptures that gives way to say, God, do whatever you want to do. And here the, the, the eunuch was like, what prevents me? There's nothing that prevents me. I thought that my cultural heritage prevented me. I thought that I was a Gentile and that prevented me, but what prevents me? He wanted, and he realized that through the preaching of God's word, that there was nothing preventing him from being sold out to Jesus. And he goes into the water, came out, it came out as a man who is walking in the newness of life. It's because he believed that the word of God was authoritative, and he also believed that his life should be dramatically altered and changed. And that should be our response. Lord, is there anything preventing me from receiving the joy that you have for me in your word? The ultimate joy of the scriptures and the ultimate end is Christ, and the ultimate ends and the result is worship and joy in Jesus Christ. And I just want to challenge us as we close. I want to invite Beth to come up and um, Ben come forward. I would like us to just take a moment and take a look at our heart posture this morning. What is your heart posture to the Word of God? Is it one of humility? Do you come before the Word of the Lord? Um, receiving it as it, what it really is and understanding your utter inability to receive it without his help? Secondly, are you coming with softened hearts? Are you on fertile or fallow hearts as Jordan challenged us last week? This is the cry of the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law for it is my meditation all the day. Are we counting in 2024? to give us the reverence and the fear of God again. And lastly, maybe you've been really struggling with joy as you coming before the word of God and as you're reading about his words. Maybe you're just lacking joy and you need to come up for prayer and ask the Lord to give you that joy in his truths. It was incredible. I know so many of you all got to do the prayer room, the 24-hour prayer time, and I think that was just incredible. Um, and it was just in a time in which I was really struggling that I just realized and surrendered I needed to come before the living God and pray and just pray over scripture and man out of just a regular reading of Psalm 143 the scriptures just came alive for me and it just brought me to my feet my, my, my knees again and maybe that's you in this coming year so I want to invite you all if that's who you are or what you're struggling with to come to any of our prayer partners in the room um, and to receive prayer. But let's just kind of spend some time um, and let's just ask the Lord, what, what is my heart posture toward you? And let's ask God what he wants to do in our lives to give us more joy or reverence or humility. Let's do that right now.